Well, it's time to get started. So good morning and welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I am David Kaposha. We're continuing on today in our chronological study of the Bible, and we are finding ourselves in the midst of 1 Samuel, this history book, this divine record of the early history of the kingship in Israel. And the last time we saw Israel obtain its first king in Saul. And he was a man who started off well. It was humble, but he began to trust in himself and in the support of men rather than the support of God. Saul, therefore, did not fully obey God. He trusted in his own wisdom and the wisdom of the world. And God, therefore, told Saul that God was going to remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to another man, a better man, a man whose heart was like Yahweh's. Who is that? Well, that is David. Biblical David. Today's lesson is on God's choosing of David as king. And we want to ask as we go along through our lesson today, how does God choose David? How does he mark him out? Why, even more importantly, does God choose David? What can we learn from this account about how God looks at individuals? How God assesses a person in contrast to how we normally do that? And finally, what can we learn about God when it comes to how he is pleased to glorify himself in the world through people because we're involved in that aren't we we'll be looking at these questions and a number of others but let's pray before we go on let's ask the lord to bless this time heavenly father we love your truth we love your scriptures it is sure when so many other things in the world are not sure even lord when it comes to guidelines about coronavirus lord there's lots of conflicting information and it's hard to navigate but Lord, we thank you that your word is totally reliable and that you even make it clear to the simple. It makes wise the simple. We're so glad for that. But we need you, Lord, to make us wise by your word, wise according to your wisdom. Help me, Lord, to be able to explain this word now in a clear and helpful way, in an accurate way. And I pray, Lord, that you would help the people to be attentive, any who are listening today, that they would be sensitive to what your spirit is saying to them through your word. Lord, because we are meant to be transformed by it. And I pray that you would accomplish that in this time. Amen. All right. Well, please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel, if you haven't done so yet. 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's kind of strange, but we've been kind of marching through a number of chapters in 1 Samuel, five or six chapters at a time, four or five chapters at a time. But today we're just doing one chapter. It's kind of nice, a little bit different. We're just focusing on 1 Samuel 16 today. And recall that in the previous chapter, which is one we looked at together last time, Saul has just failed in his mission to totally destroy the Amalekites. Remember, he didn't destroy all the animals and he didn't destroy the king. God rebuked Saul through Samuel. He announced again God's rejection of Saul. And Samuel then went home, never to see Saul again in person for the rest of Samuel's life. But let's now read what happens next in 1 Samuel 16, and we'll start in just the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 13. So please follow along with me as I read. Here's what it says. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord, that's the term Yahweh there. Now Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what Yahweh said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came, trembling to meet him, and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab, and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. All right, well, as always, we're going to be following our inductive Bible study method, which is observe, interpret, apply. We start looking at this section of text with just simple observations on what appears in the text. So let's take a look. In verse 1, notice, God calls Samuel to stop grieving over Saul, but instead to set about commissioning God's replacement king. And to do this, notice that God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, to a man named Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, is this the first time we've seen Bethlehem in the scriptures? Not at all. The city was previously called Ephrath, and it first appeared in Genesis 35:19. It was the vicinity in which Jacob buried his wife Rachel. But more directly, Bethlehem is the name of the town that we saw together as the home of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. In fact, we learn from Ruth chapter 4, verses 17 to 22, that Jesse is the descendant of Ruth and Boaz by Obed. So Bethlehem we've seen before. God sends Samuel to Bethlehem. Notice in verse 2, though, Samuel expresses some concern about this trip. Uh, it says Samuel, Samuel claims that Saul will kill Samuel if Saul hears that Samuel's going down to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. Now, while Samuel is fearful, notice in verses 3 to 4 what God tells Samuel to say to Saul or to anybody asking what Samuel is doing. Samuel is to say that he's going to Bethlehem to offer sacrifice, and he's to take a heifer with him as proof actually offer up that, that heifer. Now, is this true? Is Samuel going to Bethlehem specifically to sacrifice? Well, yes, that's true. And, we're, and we see that. He, he, he does the sacrifice. But is that the only reason he's going? Is that the primary reason he's going to Bethlehem? Well, no. But how is Samuel going to meet Jesse under this cover of offering a sacrifice? Notice verse 4 tells us that God tells Samuel to invite Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. And remember, for Israel's sacrifices, for some of them, specifically the peace offerings, the worshiper and any clean persons with him, they could eat of the sacrifice, which normally either no one ate from or only the priest and his family ate from. But for certain sacrifices, those offering the animal could participate and enjoy some of the meat. It's kind of like a, a banquet or a feast. So, Samuel's going to invite the elders of the city and Jesse and his sons to enjoy the sacrificial meal with him. Now, how do the elders of Bethlehem react when they see Samuel arrive? Well, they come trembling, it says. They're afraid. They ask if Samuel's coming in peace. Samuel says he is. He's coming in peace. He's coming to offer sacrifice. And he invites the necessary persons to the sacrificial meal. Before eating the sacrifice, however, Samuel has the sons of Jesse present themselves before him. And uh, notice in verses 6 to 7, the first son. This would be the oldest son, Eliab. Samuel looks at him and he, and he comes to an instant conclusion. He thinks Eliab is surely Yahweh's chosen king. And why? Well, it's not stated directly in Samuel's words, but in God's response. Surely this has to do with Eliab's appearance. He has the stately form and he has the height that just looks like kingly material. But God redirects Samuel's thinking. Note carefully what God says to Samuel in verse 7. God says, I have rejected Eliab. Don't look at his appearance. I've rejected him. For I, 
Yahweh do not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But Yahweh, I, Yahweh, I look at the heart. By the way, does Eliab remind you of anyone that we've seen recently? Kingly, tall, yet rejected by God? Isn't this the exact description of Saul? I mean, we heard it more specifically with Saul in terms of he's like a, a whole head taller uh, from the shoulders upward. He was taller than anybody in Israel. But it's just like Saul. And just like Saul, or just like Eliab, Saul was specifically rejected by God despite his appearance. So Eliab is not God's new king. But what about the other sons? Uh, we hear the other seven sons pass before Samuel in verses 8 to 10. But each time, Samuel says, Yahweh has not chosen this one. Now, David, the youngest son of Jesse, was not there with the rest of the family at the sacrifice or the sacrificial meal, which you feel like is kind of rough, right? Why isn't David there? Well, in verse 11, we hear that David is tending the sheep. He got shepherd duty. Sorry, you're the youngest. You got to go take care of the sheep. The rest of us are going to go head to that, that sacrifice. You know, this is it's like a really great honor to be there. We're going. Sorry, you're not. When Samuel hears about this remaining son, though, he says, this whole group, elders, Jesse's family, we're not going to sit down and eat until David arrives. And David does arrive in verse 12, and notice the description of him. He's described as ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes. Now, ruddy is not a word we use very often in English. Literally, the word in Hebrew means reddish. And the only other person described with this term is actually Esau. This term is used of Esau at his birth. Remember, it says he came out red and hairy. Well, that's this term, reddish, ruddy. That's Genesis 25, 25, by the way. So ruddy must mean that David, like Esau, had a reddishness to him, either in his skin or in his hair. Interestingly, the NIV translation of this verse, it interprets the ruddiness as a sign of physical fitness. If you look at the, the way they translate the phrase in that passage, it is, he was glowing with health. Okay, maybe. As for David's eyes, remember that eyes were particularly important in the Hebrew concept of beauty. Somebody's mentioned as beautiful in the Bible, usually their eyes are also mentioned. And if you remember Leah also, we see this with her, Jacob's wife, what was her one drawback, according to the scriptures? What's her eyes? But David has beautiful eyes. But despite these unique aspects to David, what is missing from the description of David that we see with Saul and Eliab? David's not tall. doesn't have that stately form. He does stand out in his own way, but he doesn't look like a king. But God tells Samuel at the end of verse 12, This is my chosen one. Samuel, anoint him with the oil. And Samuel does. And verse 13 says that Samuel anoints David in the midst of his brothers. And that must have been a shocking development for the family and all those at the sacrificial feast. I mean, the youngest of Jesse, the, the shepherd, is anointed by Samuel, the judge of Israel, God's prophet, in the sight of them all. Now, could you imagine being at an occasion like this? Imagine you got together with your relatives and the youngest sibling or the youngest child in your family is suddenly marked out and honored above the rest by God's representative. That must have been very surprising. By the way, where else in the Bible do we see younger sons or younger children honored over the other sons? Actually, we see this a lot, haven't we? I mean, you go back, Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac was younger. Jacob over Esau, he was younger. Joseph above his brothers, he was the youngest apart from Benjamin. And then Ephraim above Manasseh, who was the younger of Joseph's two sons. God does this a lot. David the youngest is anointed before his whole family. And then what happens to David afterwards? Notice the end of verse 13 says that the Spirit of God comes upon David powerfully from that day forward. All right, we've observed the details of the text. Now we want to go to step two, which is interpretation. But take the details of the text and try and answer questions that are not explicitly answered by the passage, but that we can use the details to come up with competent answers. Let's take a look at a few questions. First, why is Samuel concerned that anointing a new king would result in Saul killing Samuel? 
It's not stated in our passage, but I think we can, we can understand this, can't we? Uh, reigning kings don't usually like to hear of challengers to their rule or to their kingly title. I mean, just think of Herod the Great in the New Testament, right? When he hears that Jesus the Messiah has been born, he ultimately determines to kill him. So, despite the word of divine rejection given to Saul, he apparently is determined to hold on to the kingship. And he's acting in such a way, or he's made that or he's made that manifest in such a way that Samuel now fears for his life. If he sees me going to a place and he figures I'm going to anoint a new king, he's probably going to try and kill me. Of course, God provides for Samuel. But uh, the way God provides is maybe a little bit uh, puzzling. Was Samuel's explanation as to why he was going to Bethlehem truthful or was it in fact deceptive? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by deceptive. Samuel does tell the truth. He is truly going to Bethlehem to sacrifice at Yahweh's direction. However, Samuel does leave out the more important part of his purpose of going to Bethlehem, which is to anoint a new king. Now, was this deception? I don't think that's a great word to describe what Samuel is doing. But even if you maintain that it is deceit, it is not unrighteous. And we know that because who tells Samuel to do this? God. God is a God of truth. God cannot lie. Yet God permits and even commands Samuel to share some true information while withholding other true information. Now this is totally in line with the biblical principle that we've seen in previous Sunday school lessons. Do you remember back when we looked at Rahab and how she hid the spies or the Hebrew midwives and how they did not kill the children? We talked about lying and uh, telling the truth. If you want to learn more, definitely go back and listen to those lessons. The principle that we saw and that we see even here is that Christians may never lie because that is to be unlike God. Yet they can withhold part of the truth in certain situations uh, for the sake of good. Now, you don't withhold information when telling that information would do good. But in certain situations, it is, it is a fine thing to do. And we see it even happening here. Another question, with what kind of oil does Samuel anoint David? This is not simply olive oil, which many people would use back in those days to freshen their appearance, to anoint themselves. This was actually the holy oil. This must be the holy oil that's mentioned in association with the tabernacle back in Exodus 30. The holy oil, also called the anointing oil, it was originally part of cleansing and setting apart as holy the various implements of the tabernacle, like the lampstand or the altar or the, uh, the various implements or the, uh, the bowls and such. But here we see the oil being point, or poured on a person. Actually, this first happened with Saul, but now David are set apart by God by this oil, designated as kings set apart from the people and before dedicated to Yahweh. Now, the fact that the holy objects were anointed with the same oil is very instructive. And it, it explains a little bit of what we see happening with David later on in reference to Saul. There are opportunities where, because Saul is trying to kill David, David has a chance to harm Saul. But he will not do it. And why? He keeps saying the same thing. I will not stretch out my hand against God's anointed. If somebody's been set apart by God, even with a special anointing oil, you don't mess with that. You revere those who have been set apart by God according to this holy oil. They are the anointed ones. And remember, that's connected with the term Messiah. You were to revere those who are God's Messiah. That would be the kings of Judah and ultimately the great king to come, Jesus. So this is the holy oil with which Samuel anoints David. But now the big question, why did God choose David to replace Saul as king? Now there are a number of ways we can accurately answer this question, but it is a very important one. One way, first answer to this question, is that God selects David because David has a righteous heart. After all, isn't this what we've seen so far in 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel 13, 14, when God is rejecting Saul, he says, Yahweh has sought out himself a man after his own heart. Or in 1 Samuel 15, 28, 
It says, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, today, and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Additionally, we see in our passage, it's implied when God says, I look at the heart, not the outward appearance, that David has a heart that is special. David's heart was different from others. David had a good heart. David was not simply a religious poser like many in Israel, even like Saul. David wasn't one who merely honored God with his lips while his heart was far from God, to use the words of Isaiah 29, 13. David was not one who, who only participated in various religious and worship rituals while he covered over a continuously ungodly and disobedient life. David was the real deal. David loved God. David had a heart <clears throat> that was like God's own. Now, of course, by heart, I'm, I'm not referring to the blood-pumping mechanism or even just one's emotions. Heart, mind, soul, they're all used interchangeably in the scriptures to describe the inner person, the inner man. David was different on the inside. He had a good heart. He was righteous. And to explain that a little bit further, it means he had genuine faith in God, in Yahweh. And he was genuinely obedient. So in a sense, the exaltation to kingship of, of, God, of David by God, it was, it was a reward to David for his righteousness. It was consistent with God raising up those who truly honor him. But as we bring the rest of the scriptures to also answer this question of why God chooses David as king, we might ask, well, why was David righteous? Why did David have such faith that manifested in a righteous life? Well, what's the answer? It's God's grace. It's only the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. God mercifully gave David the gift of faith, and he caused David to walk in obedience. This was not something innately produced in David, nor was he even prone to this more than others. It was all a work of God. David himself confesses in Psalm 51.5, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now David is not saying in that psalm that he was born from immorality. He was saying that he was born a sinner. David acknowledges, I am an inheritor of the spiritual death of my forefather, just like everyone else, even us today. David was born a rebel, a sinner committed to his own way. He was unrepentant and unable to repent. Or to use a theological term, he was totally depraved or radically corrupt. But God had mercy on David. He opened David's eyes to God's truth. He gave David the gift of faith. He covered David with his own righteousness, which ultimately would come through the Messiah, the greater Messiah, Christ. God gave life to David's spirit and David therefore believed God and followed after him in obedience. David did nothing to deserve this wonderful act of God, just as none of us do. It was undeserved favor, which is what grace is. Grace is just undeserved, unmerited favor. So yes, it is true that God bestowed the kingship on David because David was righteous, but it's also true that David was righteous only because God gave the gift of faith to David. So a second way to accurately answer the question of why did God choose David to be king is that it was simply God's good pleasure. Nothing that David earned or deserved, it was just God's good pleasure for his own glory. God did not have to choose David. God did not have to give David faith or cause him to walk in the way of righteousness. David still would have been responsible for his own path of sin, just as we all are, whether we choose to follow God or not. Without God's saving intervention, David would never have chosen to follow after God. And without a heart of faith, God would have no reason to give David the kingship. So the choice for king ultimately was not based on David's righteousness, but God's good pleasure. And of course, this is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Jacob? Why did God choose to exalt Joseph among his brothers? Nothing because of what they deserved. In fact, sometimes they seem like they're pretty undeserving, like you look at Jacob. But it was just God's good pleasure. He had mercy on whom he chose to have mercy. And he showed grace to those that he determined to. And it was all for his glory 
We see this, by the way, expressed well in Philippians, this concept. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. This is talking about believers, and it says, Paul speaking to them, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, and here's the key part I want to highlight, verse 13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. It's all about God in the end. Nothing about our own glory, and certainly nothing that we earn or deserve. If we experience any good from God in our lives, especially in salvation, it is undeserved. It is God acting for his own glory and according to his own goodness. And that's what God is doing with David here. It is God's good pleasure to exalt David. Now these are <clears throat> two important and accurate answers to the question of why God chose David, but there are two other answers that I think are worth highlighting now. A third answer is that well, this is part of God being faithful to his promises. We saw last time when it came to analyzing the kingship and the expectation of it in the Old Testament that God did promise to bless Israel with a righteous human king. And it would be from the line of Judah. So we needed a special descendant from the line of Judah to be king and fulfill God's promise. Well, David, he is in the line of Judah. And so he is part of God fulfilling his word. But there's one other answer I want to highlight. A fourth reason why God chooses David is because this is part of God's glorying in the foolish gospel. God was going to use the weak and the seemingly foolish to shame the strong. And we see this concept very well expressed in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you take your Bibles a moment and turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, believers there. And he says this to them, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is a wonderful expression and revelation of God's heart here in 1 Corinthians. God is a God who loves to confound the wisdom of the so-called wise men of the world and to show the so-called strong their utter powerlessness. And how does he do that? He does that in a number of ways, but one of his chief ways is by exalting the lowly, by taking the weak, the ignorant, the despised, and turning them into powerful and glorious instruments of God. When the weak and foolish triumph, when they clearly do not have the strength or wisdom on their own, who gets the glory? God does. And God, as the worthy being that he is, he deserves all the glory. And he gives it to himself. He displays it by using the weak and exalting the foolish of the world, according to the world. And thus, this is exactly what God is doing with David. God is delighted to choose and raise up David to be king because David is the youngest. David is the one given shepherd duty. He's not even invited to the sacrifice celebration. And his appearance did not look kingly. Now these didn't earn God's favor, but they became, as God determined and according to his goodwill, an excellent opportunity to put God's glory on display. God chose to make this lowly one, this one of no account, king of his chosen people. God would also grant David success at every turn and even establish David and his physical line as the permanent line of Israel's kingship, even in the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, Jesus. And what is David's response to all this exaltation? Does David say, wow, I guess I really am great after all and I didn't even know it. No, that's not David's response. We actually hear it from his own lips in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. 
2 Samuel 7, 18, this is that passage famous for the expression of the Davidic covenant. God expresses to David what God is going to do for David and his house. And this is what David says to God. <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing here. <clears throat> Pardon me. God, who am I that I should receive such blessings? You deserve all the honor and praise, God. Why have you shown me such kindness? And this is the proper response of God's people. Wasn't it the same thing we heard from Jacob back in Genesis when God was doing so much for Jacob in spite of Jacob's sin and lack of faith? Jacob eventually says to God, God, I am not worthy of all the loving kindness and mercy that you have shown me. Same thing for us. Same thing for us who are in Christ. God loves to do this kind of thing. To shame the strong and the wise by exalting those of no account. He did it with David, and he's still doing it today. And each one of us, in the saints. Brothers and sisters, remember always who we are. We are 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. We are the weak the foolish, the ignorant, according to the world. And we carry what is considered by them a foolish gospel. But in God, we are more than conquerors. The gospel is absolute wisdom from God and glory to God. And one day, astoundingly, we will be exalted to rule and reign with Christ. We who are nothing, who were the foolish and the weak, God so determined in his kindness to show us that favor. Who are we that we should receive it? And yet God has done it. Certainly then, these four reasons are at the heart of why God chooses David to be king. But when would David become king? Would it be immediately? Actually, not at all. It would be many years before David is king. Though he's anointed now, it will be a long road before David actually becomes king over Israel. God ordained, actually, that for many years, David would enter into the previous king's service, into Saul's service. And he would become a greater, that is David, he would become a greater and greater blessing to Saul and to the people of Israel at the same time that Saul was becoming a greater and greater curse to himself and to the people of Israel. And actually, we begin to see that as we Look at the rest of our passage. Look now at the rest of 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Follow along with me as I start reading in verse 14. Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. And one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And Yahweh is with him. So Saul met, sent messengers to Jesse, and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Let's make some observations on this latter section. As the Spirit of God comes upon David in verse 13, notice what happens to Saul in verse 14. We hear that the Spirit of Yahweh departs from Saul. It has departed from Saul. And instead, an evil spirit, or it could be translated a harmful or troubling spirit, takes its place to afflict Saul. And notice, from where this evil spirit is said to come? From Yahweh himself. This distressing spirit or evil spirit, it actually is the cause of David entering into Saul's court. 
because according to verses 17 and 18, as we see here, David could play the harp skillfully, and that would ease Saul's anguish. Just so happens that one of Saul's attendants knew about David and David's skill. Not only is David a skillful musician, but we also hear in verse 18 that he's a mighty man of valor, a warrior. He's a man prudent in speech. He speaks wisely. He's a handsome man. And he's one with whom Yahweh is. This is someone who you can just see the blessing of God follows him. Turns out, according to verse 23, that David's music playing is indeed able to give Saul relief from this evil spirit whenever it comes upon Saul. In fact, notice what becomes Saul's attitude toward David in verse 21. Love. Saul loves David. He begins to love David. He's so pleased with David in general that he chooses to make David an armor bearer. Now, what's an armor bearer, you ask? Well, this is a special servant's position in Israel's early monarchy. The armor bearer, or the shield bearer, he was a trusted martial companion, and he accompanied his master into battle. The armor bearer would, as you could guess from the title, carry extra weapons or equipment for his master, and the two also formed a kind of battle team. If the master, for example, struck an enemy soldier with a ranged weapon during a fight, and this, uh, this enemy was wounded, the armor bearer would go and finish off the enemy soldier at close range. Armor bearers were also sometimes entrusted with the duty of, when asked, killing their masters so that the enemies could not torture or kill them themselves. So Saul's making David an armor bearer was a mark of great trust and affection. It certainly was an honored position. However, kings appear to have had multiple armor bearers, so David was not totally unique in this role. There probably were others. All right. With those observations, let's ask a few more interpretation questions. Did Saul lose his salvation when the Spirit left him? Well, the short answer is no. But there's a little bit more complication to it. Because whether Saul is ever or becomes truly saved is difficult to answer. I mean, Saul does start well. And he is used by God to perform certain mighty acts. But when we look at the tree of Saul's life, most of the fruit is pretty rotten. And Jesus says, you'll know them by the fruits. Now we remember people like Samson. Samson, he had a lot of rotten fruit in his life, and yet he's commended as a man of faith in the New Testament. So it's possible that Saul was deep down someone who was saved. But regardless of whether Saul was among the redeemed or is among the redeemed or not, we should not understand the coming or leaving of the Holy Spirit upon Saul or any other individuals in the Old Testament as referring to the gain or loss of salvation. While it's certainly true that God's Spirit was active in a, the same or similar way in producing salvation and sanctification in the Old Testament as the Spirit does in the New Testament, it's similar, not totally the same. The Old Testament doesn't specifically... It doesn't really focus on that part of the Spirit's ministry. Instead, what we see the Old Testament doing when it refers to God's Spirit coming upon someone, it's actually talking about supernatural empowerment for service, leadership, or prophecy. And haven't we seen this already? You look at the craftsmen who make the tabernacle under Moses. They are empowered by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is working in them. Jacob, he prophesies about Israel's future by the Spirit of God. Israel's judges, they often had the Spirit come upon them as they led armies into battle. And we remember Samson, he performed supernatural feats of strength by the Spirit. So when the Spirit of God came upon Saul, Saul was supernaturally empowered in his role as king. This didn't have to do with salvation. This is about empowerment. God granted Saul wisdom, strength, fortitude of mind, to do what Saul needed to do as God's king. But this spirit empowerment, it does not make one invincible against sin, nor is it necessarily permanent. Sin could cause the loss of God's equipping and empowering spirit. And again, we've seen this already. Go back to Samson. Samson chooses Delilah over God. He gives up the secret of his strength. His hair is cut. And then Judges 6.20, or Judges says that, uh, Yahweh departed from Samson, and Samson no longer had his great strength. 
though God did empower Samson later one more time when Samson turned to God in faith and repentance. In a similar way, part of God's judgment and rejection of Saul as king is the removal of God's empowering spirit. The spirit instead comes upon David to fight, to praise, and ultimately to rule on behalf of Yahweh, the true king and true God. So that's what's going on with the spirit departing from Saul. But what about this evil spirit? What is this evil spirit from Yahweh? This, as you can guess, is a debated subject, but really, there's nothing wrong with us taking the description at face value as it's given in the New American Standard. This is most likely an evil spirit, that is, a demon sent by God to harass and afflict Saul. Now, you could perhaps argue that this is not a demon, but a righteous spirit, an angel, but his role is to harm or distress or trouble Saul as an agent of judgment. I mean, we do see angels destroying armies in the Bible, so it's not like they can't hurt anybody. So maybe this is an angel. Well, the role of afflicting and tormenting people in the Bible is usually described as the work of demons, devils, not angels. And if we just look at a kind of parallel and the afflicting spirit that Paul endured in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says this was a messenger of Satan. He didn't say God sent an angel to, to keep humbling me, a righteous angel. No, it was a messenger of Satan. So, <clears throat> most likely, I would say this is a demon and not a righteous angel sent by God to afflict Saul. Now, some object. No, wait, this cannot be an actual demon because this is sent by God. How can a righteous God control demons or send them to afflict people? Well, if God is completely sovereign, which he is, he must have control of demons, and indeed of all evil in the world. After all, we see in the Bible, God often sends the armies of wicked nations as judgments on other nations. And these armies, they commit all sorts of sinful atrocities in their judgments on specific persons and nations. Yet God was in control of all of that. Now, does this make God evil? Does he become a chargeable cause of sin? Well, absolutely not. James tells us emphatically that God is not the tempter of evil. God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And Paul says further in Romans 3, 6, that God as the righteous judge of the universe, by definition, cannot be evil. And no man may use God's sovereignty as an excuse for sin. People and demons, are all completely responsible for their own evil acts. And God has and will judge both people and demons for what they choose to do. Yet, God is absolutely and ultimately in control of them all and all their evil acts. No evil can be done unless it is ordained by God for his own good and glorious purposes. After all, Satan had to ask God permission before Satan afflicted Job, or even sifted Peter like wheat. Remember, Satan had to ask Christ. The legion of the demoniac, they had to ask Christ for permission to enter into the pigs. This is why the great reformer Martin Luther, well, whether he actually said this or not is maybe a little debated, but he's famously reported to have said, once remarked, the devil is God's devil, meaning Satan cannot act at all without the express decree of God. He's on a leash. So then what we're seeing here in the scripture and really throughout the scripture are two biblical truths that appear to contradict each other, but are actually both true at the same time. God exercises ultimate control over all things, including evil forces. Yet God is neither evil nor the chargeable cause of evil. He doesn't coerce anyone to do evil. We are all responsible for any evil that we choose to do. And yet God is ultimately in control of it all. Now we cannot completely unravel how these truths fit together in our finite minds. But the Bible unapologetically presents both of them, both of these concepts to us as true. 
So back to Saul. We need not search for some symbolic interpretation here for this evil spirit. This is a real, likely wicked spirit, ordained, allowed, ultimately sent by God to Saul. This apparently, this spirit apparently caused some kind of mental agony for Saul, perhaps related to fear, anxiety, or depression. And we see this characterize Saul through the rest of his life. God was the ultimate cause of this, but not the chargeable cause. Yet God also ordained that the playing of the sweet psalmist of Israel, that's a term later used of David, would dispel Saul's affliction. God ordained the affliction and the one who would remove it from Saul. Consider then what the author is showing us pretty emphatically in this chapter about these two men, David and Saul. We see that Saul is definitely cursed by God. He is being judged by the Lord for rejecting God. God said, you reject me, I reject you. By contrast, we see David is blessed by God, and he will be a blessing to others, even those who have come under God's curse. These realizations, they make Saul's later actions seem even more heinous and unjustified. Saul will actually turn against David when David has done nothing but good to Saul. And also we see that God is already bringing about David's rise as the king of Israel. Yeah, it'll take a while. But God is fulfilling the word that he spoke both to Saul and to David, because God is faithful. It's really, as we've seen at the beginning of 1 Samuel, maybe remember me mentioning this in the, the last two lessons, God says, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Just as God brought down Eli and raised up Samuel, now God is bringing down Saul and raising up David. Interestingly, both divine replacements actually serve the previous ones who are being brought down. Samuel serves Eli, David serves Saul. And David would prove to be the best servant of Saul. And we'll see more of that in coming lessons. So we see from 1 Samuel 16 today, fundamental truths emphasized to us about God's sovereignty, God's cursing and blessing, and also God's heart to glorify himself in what the world would call a foolish way. But what are we to do with these truths? How should they instruct us, transform us, and how we live our lives? Now let's go to the third step of our Bible study method, which is application. Considering all we've seen from 1 Samuel 16, how can we apply it? I'm going to give you three applications, the suggestions. Of course, you can. I advise you, counsel you, to continue to meditate on this passage and see what other proper applications you can draw. But here are three, I think, big ones from our passage. First, we need to prepare for God's true assessment. Prepare for God's true assessment. Just as God discerned the true nature of David's heart and Eliab's heart, so God also discerns the hearts of each one of us. There's no point in putting up a spiritual facade to the house of your life when it is filled with darkness and uncleanness. God sees. God sees through that. God knows because he looks at the heart. God actually hates hypocrisy. He hates rote worship. They provoke him to anger. So will we really continue to do those things? What should you do if you have been living a hypocritical life? Secretly, though you say all the right things, you go to church, you maintain a, a righteous appearance, Deep down, you're, you're like the Pharisees, full of dead man's bones. What should you do? Well, listen to what the scripture says. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What you've got to do is you've got to confess your sin before the Lord, repent of it, and trust in Christ. Don't try to hide your sin. Don't try to hide your hypocrisy. Don't try to do a whole bunch of good work to try and spread a covering over it. God sees through all of that. All those things are actually offensive to him. Own your sin. Confess it to be before God exactly what he says it is, which is the ugliest rebellion the universe has seen, which is what all sin is. Own it and then turn away from it. Say, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. You have provided a wonderful uh, 
salvation and Christ, I want Christ instead. I don't want my sin. I don't want my own way anymore. I want your way. I want the righteousness that comes through that comes only through Christ, his righteousness on my behalf, his life, death, and resurrection that cleanses all my sin and that makes me acceptable to God. If you have lived as a hypocrite, it doesn't matter. God is still willing to show mercy to you if you will repent and believe. So do that, because otherwise a judgment is coming. God will lay bare what has been going on in your heart the whole time. And if you're not clothed with Christ at that moment, you will receive the penalty, which Scripture says is unending torment and fire and darkness. That is the penalty of sin, which Christ absorbed on the cross for all those who belong to him. But for those outside of him, there is no mercy. There is no grace of God. There is certainly a sobering aspect to the assessment of God of our hearts. But there's also... There's an encouraging side to it too. And that is, there are many who maybe are slandered as evil. Indeed, that actually is the true state of all Christ's followers. To some extent or another, they will be judged by the world as evildoers, as the ones who are not worth favor, not worth kindness. That's all of us who are the saints. But you know, just as God vindicated David and showed he has a heart that's truly like mine, so he will do that for his people. When we go to be with God, but especially when the final judgments come upon the earth, God will show who his righteous ones really are. Those who are not made righteous by their own doing, but by the mercy of God. And he will say, look. These are mine. They have hearts like mine, and I am pleased to reward them. So, brothers and sisters, we need to prepare for God's true assessment. Don't hide a wicked heart. But if you have a heart that's been cleansed by Christ, take courage. God will vindicate you one day. Ask yourselves, if God were to assess your heart right now, what would be his verdict? Would it be, as with Saul and Eliab, rejected? Or would it be, as with David, accepted on the basis of God's mercy and the provision of Jesus Christ? That's one application, a main application. Yeah, I appreciate that, um, that scripture there, Juan and Amy. You quote Psalm 19.4, Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths be pleasing in your sight. You know, some people, it actually reminds me, some people, I don't know if you've encountered this in an evangelistic conversation, but they sometimes fall back on their hearts as the way that they're going to get into heaven. They'll say, oh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not perfect, but God knows my heart, and I think he'll accept me. That's a wrong way of thinking. That's a, that's a wrong kind of application of this. This is not, I'm righteous according to myself, I have a certain righteousness in my heart, and on that basis, I'm going to be made acceptable to God. No, the only kind of justification that you will have before God comes from a foreign righteousness. And that kind of righteousness, it manifests in a different life. So if you're living a, a plainly sinful life, a life of continual habits of sin, and yet you say to yourself, well, God knows my heart. Well, you've got to listen to the other scriptures, which say, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good or the evil that one performs in one's life, it comes from the heart. This is why the scripture warns the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Only God can. And you know how he reveals it to us? Through his word. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the word of God being living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. And what does it do? It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You think your heart is fine before God? Well, subject it to the scriptures, because it's possible that you're blind to what's really going on in your heart. You need the scriptures and God's Spirit speaking through the scriptures to show you where you really are. You won't have a heart that is righteous apart from God's merciful intervention. The only righteousness that we have comes from Christ on our behalf. Not an infused righteousness, as the Catholics would hold, but an imputed righteousness. 
one that is counted to us, not generated by ourselves. All right, let me talk about a second application. We should prepare for God's true assessment, but we should also be sure not to judge according to mere appearances. I mean, if God eschews man's propensity to judge according to appearances, then shouldn't we also? Now, it's true, sometimes appearance corresponds to what's really going on in the heart. Some, sometimes people may act or dress a certain way or appear a certain way because it reflects what they, what they really love and what they really value. But you know what? Not all the time. In fact, we're warned in the book of James that if we judge merely according to appearances and we're prejudiced against others on that basis, that we become wicked. We become judges with evil motives, he says. And you know what? We subject ourselves to the judgment of God. So, we do not want to take that perspective. We want to learn from how God assesses people, and we want to do the same. We should be concerned about what's going on in someone's heart rather than the external appearance. Don't become fixated. Don't become prejudiced against somebody by the way they dress, by jewelry that they wear, by tattoos that they have by whether they look poor or rich, they dress properly for church, or they just came in like they were going to some casual get-together. None of those things matter, ultimately. It's the heart that matters to God, and that's what should matter to us. So if you find yourself not serving, not loving, not evangelizing people because of their appearance, well, then you need to repent. Because, as James says, that is becoming a judge with evil motives. God doesn't look at appearances, and neither should we. We should not become fixated or focused on that, but focused on the heart. One other application. Glory in the foolish gospel. I mean, we already kind of looked at this application a little bit earlier. But it says, 1 Corinthians 1 says, We are in Christ, but it is according to a method and the, the people that God has chosen it's all foolish, at least according to the world. But God makes foolish the wisdom of the world, and he shows his foolishness to be wiser than anything man could ever have determined. Now, for us, this means, first of all, that we should praise God. God, I am nothing. I am worse than the weak. I am one of the greatest sinners. I have been a rebel against you. There is nothing special about me. Yet, God, you've given me a seat at your table. Lord, you've invited me into your kingdom. I'm going to rule and reign with you forever. Why have you shown me such kindness? We should be praising the Lord, grateful to the Lord, living in a worthy way because of that. But secondly, we should not be ashamed of the gospel or of living a life that pleases Christ. You know that we have such pressure from the world today to just be like them, pursue what they pursue, value what they value, act according to their wisdom, believe what they believe. Oh, I don't know if I can believe what the scripture says here because the world says, no, that's not scientifically acceptable. And we feel pressure to not be seen as foolish. But brothers and sisters, ultimately, that's what we're going to be to the world. If you want to be like the world then you're not going to be like what Christ called you to be. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, on the day that I come back to reign, I will be ashamed of you. You won't have a place in my kingdom. Let's not be afraid to do what's right before others, even if no one else is doing it. Let's not be afraid to affirm that the word is authoritative and that it is the foundation for how we examine anything in the word, world. Start with the Bible. Don't start with man's opinion and then assess the Bible. Start with the Bible, and then you'll see clearly how to assess things in the world. Don't be ashamed to parent God's way. Don't be ashamed that you can't pursue the leisure pursuits that other people do. Oh, you don't watch this movie? Oh, like, are you some kind of, like, weird person? Don't be ashamed of that. You are going to be different. Brethren, we are going to be different from the world. So let's embrace that. In fact, that's how we're the greatest witness to the world. You know, it's a totally wrong line of thinking to say, oh, we need to show the people in the world that we're not that different from them. They won't think we're so weird, and that way they'll believe in Jesus Christ. 
That is the total wrong way of thinking. That is the wisdom according to the world. Yes, don't make yourself obnoxious for the, uh, and, and think you're serving the gospel, but you're going to be different. You're going to be considered foolish. Remember the other word of scripture, woe to you when all men think well of you, because that's what people said of false prophets, even as Pastor Bobby has been talking about, right? But, woe, or, but blessed are you when people speak evil of you, because that's what they did to the true prophets. And that's what they did to Christ. We're to walk in our Lord's footsteps. They considered him foolish and they rejected him, but he was accepted by God. And so they will do with us. If we allow ourselves to be rejected by the people of the world for the sake of Christ, then we'll be accepted by God. And isn't that the most important thing? What will it matter if people approve of you and God doesn't? So these are three main applications. I hope that you'll continue to think of the, think on these and think of more from our passage. But that's all for this week. If you have other questions or comments, please post them in the chat. I'll interact with you a little bit afterwards. Next week, we go to one of the most famous battles of history as recorded in the scripture, David versus Goliath. I look forward to talking about that with you. Let me close our time in prayer. And like I said, I'll hang on a little bit afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great God. And thank you that you have chosen the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. That's us, God. But help us not to be ashamed of you. And Lord, neither let us live hypocritically before you. Lord, let our hearts be wholly yours, not competing with another idol, but all yours, God, and have it reflected in a life devoted to you. Lord, we thank you for your kindness, undeserved kindness to us. I pray, Lord, that we would walk worthy of it, not to earn salvation, but to make your glory known. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for being here. Uh, like I said, I'll stay on for a little bit afterwards, but otherwise, I'll see you next week.